of our regulars who weren't here this morning back with us tonight. It's good to have some visitors here with us again. I looked around this morning and I knew that uh, our crowd was a little down from what it normally is, and then that was confirmed to me tonight. I looked at the number. It's the smallest attendance since I've been here. And then when I thought about the fact that the sermon today was on the importance of preaching in our worship, I don't know if I should take that personally or not. A message was being sent to me there or something. I I do have to tell you on that note, Abby's had ear infection, sinus infection, her ears have been stopped up, and so she's had some trouble hearing, and I asked her afterwards if she could hear me today, and she said, you know, kind of. I said, what about when I was standing right there in in front of you? Yeah, she could hear me then, and I said, well, did it surprise you? You know, I walked down like that, because of course I've never done anything like that, and she said, yeah, I didn't like it. You were too close to me, so maybe maybe it is personal. I don't know. We want to begin this evening by telling a story from Scripture that illustrates our word this week, which is kindness. And it's actually a story that was in our reading this week, but it illustrates it so perfectly, and in fact, it was one that I had in mind before I realized or I remembered that it was part of our reading, that I don't mind retelling it. I don't think that's a bad thing because it's one that we're maybe not as familiar with. And of course, some of us here are visiting, and let's be honest, I know we don't always get through our reading on every single day, and that's okay. Maybe you didn't read this this week. But it's the story of a man named Mephibosheth. And it begins at the house of a fellow named Makir. There was a knock on his front door, and when he went to answer the door, there stood Ziba, formerly a servant of the late King Saul. And Ziba was there on official business. He stated the reason for his visit. King David required Mephibosheth's presence immediately. Now, everyone here tonight knows about David, I expect, the young shepherd boy who killed the giant Goliath, the sweet singer of Israel who wrote so many of the Psalms, the great conquering warrior king, a man who sinned gravely and yet was still known as a man after God's heart. Well, Mephibosheth knew all about David, too. What he didn't know was that Many years before, before David was king, before Mephibosheth was even born, his father, Jonathan, and David were the best of friends. They were so close, in fact, that they had actually made a covenant. They'd sworn an oath to each other. They'd promised that no matter what happened, they'd each look after the other's families. But Mephibosheth didn't know any of that. And so when word came that David wanted to see him, he trembled. At long last, after all of these years, David had caught up with him. He was going to meet the fate 
of any enemy of the state. Death. And he wasn't just concerned for himself. He was doubly concerned because he had a son, a young boy named Micah. He was afraid for what was going to happen to him too. And I imagine his reaction, I can see him being so afraid and probably there was a good mixture of resentment in that too. I can picture Mephibosheth thinking, maybe even saying, it's not fair. It's just not fair. Life wasn't very fair to Mephibosheth. It started off good. His father, Jonathan, was a prince. He was the son of Saul, the first king of Israel. So he was royalty. He had all of the privileges that went along with that. And it was even possible that one day he himself would have been king. He even had a good, strong name. We all know from Scripture, from ancient Near Eastern societies, just how important names were, the significance that they held. Well, Mephibosheth's name when he was born wasn't Mephibosheth. It was Merib Baal, which means contends with or strives with or opposes Baal, the false Canaanite god. But all of that, including his name, changed in an instant. Many years before, when he was just a boy, he was only five years old, he was at the palace and one day a soldier came in, bloodied, battered, exhausted. He'd come from the battlefield and he had terrible news. King Saul and his sons are dead, he said. Israel had gone to fight the Philistines, and the Philistines had killed Saul's sons. And Saul, distraught at that, had taken his own life. Well, Mephibosheth didn't really understand everything that was going on at that point, but pandemonium broke out in the palace. Some people were white with terror. Some were crying. He remembered his nurse hastily gathering some of their belongings together and coming up to him and saying to him, Mirabel, you have to run, run. We have to get out of here. And so even though not knowing why he was doing it exactly, he ran. He ran just as fast as his little five-year-old legs could carry him. But of course, that wasn't very fast. And so the nurse, desperate panicking, she picked him up and she started to carry him in her arms and she ran with him. But something happened. Something went wrong. And the boy slipped. He flew out of her arms. He fell. And in the fall, he was crippled. And so on the day that his father, Jonathan, died, on the day that his grandfather, King Saul, died, Mirabel was handicapped for life. His nurse took him away to a town far from the capital, a place named Lodabar, which literally means the land of nothing. That'll give you an idea of just how desolate that place was. And they changed his name from Mirabel to Mephibosheth. 
because no one would go looking for someone with that name, not just because it's hard to spell and hard to pronounce, but because of what it means. Remember the significance of names? Mephibosheth means son of shame. And so he would live the rest of his life without his family. He lived the rest of his life with a severe disability. Whenever he's mentioned in Scripture from that point forward, it always mentions along with it, he was crippled or he was lame in his feet. And of course, his name was now a constant reminder of that misfortune. He lived in this faraway place with an assumed name because he was in hiding. You see, he was a wanted man. Up until really almost into modern times, very recent times, not just in the ancient world, it was standard practice in any sort of dynastic struggle. You would kill every male member of a family of a king who'd been deposed because you didn't want any rival claimants to the throne. And so Mephibosheth had good reason to fear for his life. He was just the sort of person that supporters of King Saul would rally around in their opposition to David, the new king of Israel. That made him dangerous. And so for decades now, he'd lived in secrecy. He'd lived far away from the rest of Israelite society. He'd had other people care for him. Until on this day, there was that surprise knock at the door. David had found him, and he wanted to see him immediately. Well, what could he do? <laughs> His legs didn't work. It's not like he could run. He couldn't fight. And now he couldn't even hide anymore. There was nothing for Mephibosheth to do but to go and to see David and to face the end of his life with honor. And so he was brought before the king. We read this in 2 Samuel chapter 9. He bowed low before him. He put his face to the ground. He paid him homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. But his tone wasn't threatening. It wasn't angry. Still, he didn't raise his eyes from the ground, and Mephibosheth responded, I am your servant. David said to him, Don't fear. I'll show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. That, that couldn't be real. He didn't even dare to look up. He put his face to the ground again and he said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Dead dog. Now that's a fitting name because it seemed like anyone who opposed David, God's anointed one, was a dead dog. If you opposed David, that was as good as opposing God himself. Goliath ended up like a dead dog. His grandfather, Saul, opposed David. He was a dead dog. How could he expect any different for him? 
And so you get this sense almost that he's sitting there waiting for the other shoe to drop, that this can't be everything. And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. The story ends down in verse number 13. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. After all these years, David tracks down Mephibosheth. He finds him not to hunt him down and kill him, not to harm him, but to bless him. Now, that's a great story, isn't it? And that's kindness. David exhibits perfectly the virtue, the trait that we're talking about tonight. And I suppose I could wrap it up here and I could say, go thou and do likewise, and that would be it. But we want to talk just briefly a little bit more about this. Why do we need to show kindness and how can we show kindness? So why be kind? Well, first of all, obviously, straightforwardly, because Scripture commands us to be kind. We can think of the words of the prophet Micah, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? That's Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Or we could think about the text that was read a, a few moments ago in our Scripture reading. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So that passage points us to the second reason we need to be kind. We need to be kind because it reflects God. Remember when David said, and we didn't read this passage, but he said he was looking for a descendant of Jonathan, and it says it there in verse number 3. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? The Hebrew word here is chesed. That's one of the most important words in all of Scripture. Definitely one of the most important in the Old Testament. And it means kindness, goodness, faithfulness. A lot of more recent translations will translate this as steadfast love when we're talking about God. In the early English translations, if you have a King James version, for instance, but even dating before that in the English Bibles, the word loving kindness was invented to try to translate this word, to capture all of its nuance when it's applied to God. Our God is an infinitely kind God. He seeks a people that he can lavish his chesed on. He wants to establish a holy nation to be objects of it. Forty-two times in the Old Testament, we're told that his hesed endures forever. So just as one example, the 117th Psalm, it's only two verses. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all peoples, for great is his hesed toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. So if we want to be like God, and if we're his people, we should want to be like him, then we'll be kind. 
Thirdly, and also related to that, since it reflects him, kindness will help us to win others to Jesus. Consider, just as an example, what Peter talks about, 1 Peter chapter 3. You could go read this in the first few verses, but it's in the context of a section where he's talking about the way we need to live our lives. And the example that he gives here is wives living with husbands who aren't believers themselves. And he says that it's still possible through their conduct, their kindness, that they may yet convert them. Kindness can win people to Jesus. Conversely, the flip side of that, I'm not sure, in fact, I'd say that I'm sure there's not anything that has done more damage to the church and to the cause of Christ than Christians who are unkind. That doesn't reflect our kind God. It certainly doesn't reflect Jesus. And aside from that, who in the world would be attracted to that? Who wants to be a part of a bunch of people who are just cantankerous, mean-spirited, born in the... uh, Kickative case in the objective mood, as my great-granddad used to say. People don't want to be around uh, people like that. And so if we're going to be kind in order to attract people to Jesus, that means we need to be kindly in our judgments. We need to look for the best in people rather than the worst. We need to look for extenuating circumstances rather than trying to look for ways that they're guilty. We need to be slow to condemn and quick to commend people. And we'll do that not simply from a sense of duty, but out of a heart of love and out of a heart that reflects the kindness of God. And if we're going to be kind and win people to Jesus, we'll give and we'll serve. I imagine everyone here tonight knows the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. This is, other than the prodigal son, the most famous of Jesus' parables. Well, the world, even those who aren't Christians, has remembered this nameless Samaritan for centuries now. Why? Because he was kind. He was compassionate, he was gentle, he was merciful. He gave himself and he served someone who was in need. On the other hand, that priest and that Levite, they live in infamy. Now, they weren't accessories to the robbery. They didn't go and pick the fellow's pockets of anything that was left behind by the thieves. They didn't go and inflict any additional injuries on the half-dead man laying there on the side of the road. They did nothing. And that's precisely the problem. These were supposed to be the religious leaders. And yet, they certainly didn't reflect the kindness of the God they claimed to serve. As we said, probably nothing does more harm to drawing people to God than those who are supposedly his people who don't demonstrate his kindness. Nothing could be more unlike the God that they supposedly followed than to be unkind like they were. If we're going to be kind and we're going to draw people to Jesus, then we'll also be forgiving. We won't harbor grudges. We'll love our enemies. We'll bless those who persecute us. We'll pray for those who mistreat us. In doing that, we'll be emulating Jesus, just as he did on the cross. Father, 
Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the kindness that Jesus demonstrated for us. Fourth, finally, we should be kind because it has a way of coming back to us. I think about what Paul says, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, he lays out this principle, don't be deceived, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Now that's not our primary motivation for being kind, it's not as important as all these other things we've talked about, but kindness has a way of returning to us and blessing us. You go to an example outside scripture, I I think of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. (laughs) that's one that a lot of us probably are familiar with, and if you're like me, you love that movie. George Bailey thought that his life was useless. He thought that it had been wasted. And all he'd ever really done was to be kind to other people, to give of himself, to, to serve them. And what he finds in the end is that He's touched the lives of others beyond his wildest imagination. It's had an effect, just his being kind. And in the end, it returns back to him, and it blesses him because people are kind to him. You know, we claim to be people who want to restore the early church, the first century church. And if you grew up in churches of Christ, we've got all these great slogans going back to the early days of the Restoration Movement that a lot of us have heard. We want to do Bible things in Bible ways. We want to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible's silent. That's not just about worshiping God's way. You know, I think that's important, urgently important. We've got a series of lessons on Sunday morning where we're sort of thinking our way through that again. It's not just about the church being organized the way that it was in the first century, even though that's important too. It's about living God's kind of life in every aspect of our lives. And you look at the early Christians, do we exhibit the kindness that the first century church did? A kindness that reaches out to those in need, even to the denial of our own needs? A kindness that loves and prays for our enemies, even and especially to the point that they're killing us. A kindness that reflects our Lord Jesus. See, kindness is the very character of God that makes him want to save us, that steadfast love we talked about. Kindness is the fifth in the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. We could think about what we mentioned a few moments ago. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Are we kind? Are we kind to our brothers and sisters in Christ? I'm thankful I haven't seen anything like this here, but frankly, some of the most unkind actions I've seen are directed to others in the church. Some of the articles I've read over the years in print or online or some of the things I've seen on Facebook, uh, we rip and we gnaw and we tear at each other. We confuse contending for the faith, which we're commanded to do, with being contentious for the faith. Are we kind to those who disagree with us politically? I've seen things from 
Christians on the right and on the left where they tear at those who disagree with them in ways that they wouldn't on any other subject matter. It's okay to have convictions. It's okay to defend them. But we can disagree without being disagreeable. Are we kind to our family members? Husbands, are you kind to your wives? Wives, are you kind to your husbands? Are you kind to your children, fathers, mothers? Young people, we've only got one. Sorry to single you out, Tristan. Are you kind to your parents? <laughs> Not to put you on the spot. See, the point is, if we don't practice kindness in our own homes, in our own families, where theoretically we love one another, how in the world are we going to put it into practice in other areas of our lives? Are we really about restoring the New Testament church, even when it comes down to these attitudinal things, or do we just want to play at it for a couple of hours on Sundays? Is God satisfied with that, you think? Let us be kind. Let's be kind in all things, in all ways, in all areas of our life. And if you're here this evening and you need to avail yourself of the kindness of our infinitely kind God, if you need to make a change in your life in any way this evening, it's his invitation while we stand and while we sing. Calling today, why from the sunshine of love wilt thou roam?